Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. But she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Father, as we turn to your word seeking signs and seeking wisdom from you, we pray that you would grant these things to us. And that on the day of judgment, we might be testified to not by those who went before us, but by your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose righteousness we stand, and whose word we listen to now. Bless us, Lord, now as we hearken to the preaching of your word. In Christ's name, amen. When I was younger, there was a phrase that people used to use that I always hated. It just drove me nuts. They would say, ignorance is bliss. Ignorance is bliss, and, and I thought ignorance was stupid. I didn't think it was bliss. Like, I wanted knowledge. I wanted to know things. I didn't want to be ignorant of things, so I thought it was silly to not want to know. As I've gotten older, though, I've come to understand, as I've had more experience worrying about stuff, I've realized that ignorance really can be bliss sometimes. It can be nice not to know things, not to have to think about things, and yet, Whenever I hear people say that, there's still a part of me that's like, not really, right? Ignorance, it's not good. It's not good to be ignorant. And yet, when I think about Jesus' words, I recognize there is something good about ignorance. Ignorance lessens guilt. Knowledge isn't always good. You might think it's good to know and to know and to know, but sometimes knowledge increases guiltiness. Because to know and not to do makes you guiltier than those who do not know. Sometimes the hardest people to help are the people who have knowledge. As a pastor, I run into this a lot. I can help you see your situation from a biblical perspective. I can show you how Christ speaks to the circumstances of your life. And for someone who doesn't know the Bible very well, that can be really helpful. And sometimes just having someone who can say, no, no, the Bible teaches this, you should see it this way, can be eye-opening, can be life-changing to have someone give you that kind of knowledge. But to those who already possess that knowledge, that knowledge can be a barrier. They already know everything I'm going to tell them, and yet they still have the problem that they have. If they've come to me, they've come to me for something else because they feel that that knowledge hasn't done for them 
what they need. Well, the reason, of course, is pretty simple. It's because all too often our problems aren't knowledge problems. Our problems are heart problems. And heart problems aren't solved just by having more knowledge. Something deeper has to change. When you have a heart problem, knowledge can actually become an obstacle in your path. You can use your knowledge as a kind of smokescreen. When people try to point out to you what you're getting wrong, when they try to encourage you, you tell yourself, well, I already know this. You're just saying things I already know. I know them better than you do. Tell me something I don't know. And we don't listen to the words of truth. We see the the good advice coming and we harden ourselves to it because we think we already know. But here in this case... As we reflect on Jesus' words, we see a second way that knowledge becomes an obstacle. Knowledge intensifies guilt. If you already know the answers, but you don't live by them, then your guilt is greater than the guilt of those who are ignorant. It would be better for you not to know than to know but not do. Now, when this moment happens... In Matthew 12, when the scribes and the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. If you're reading along, this might seem like a turning point. Because these men have been hardened to the words of Jesus up to now. They've spoken against him up to now. But when they come to him and they say, Hey, teacher, we'd like to see a sign from you. You could read this as a kind of opening. Like maybe they're, they're backing off a little bit. They're saying, hey, okay, okay, maybe what you're saying is true. We're willing to hear this. Why don't you show us a sign? If it's not wrong to seek signs, if it's not wrong to look for some sign or confirmation of the truth of God's word, then why are the scribes and Pharisees wrong here? Why does Jesus condemn them for asking for a sign? We're flashing forward a little bit because this is a question that comes up later in Matthew's Gospel as well, in Matthew 16, and this represents a dilemma for me. I had to ask myself, am I going to talk about this this morning when we're, we're in Matthew 12 because the same thing basically happens again, or should I save it and we can talk about it again when we get to Matthew 16, which will be in a few years? <laughs> at this rate. Um, But I want to talk about them together. So if you look quickly at Matthew 16, right at the beginning, almost the exact same thing happens. A slightly different group of people, a slightly different conversation, but Jesus gives them more or less the same answer, just more succinctly. In Matthew 16, we read, and the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But you get a little clue there in that difference, right? To test him, they asked him this. We see what's really going on. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. So you can see in Matthew 12, Matthew 16, the same thing, more or less, happening. Knowledgeable men go to Jesus, and they demand signs from him, but he refuses to give them signs. 
there's only one sign you're going to get, and that's the sign of Jonah. And the parallel between Jonah's three days and three nights and Christ's death and resurrection is clear. The sign of Jonah that they're going to be given is the sign of the crucifixion and resurrection after three days. That's the sign that he's talking about. In Matthew 16, though, because of the repetition of the story, you get a sense that this is a common thing that happens, right? When people are arguing with Jesus in order to test him, they ask for signs. They're asking him to prove himself. They're asking him to somehow confirm, like do, us a, do a little trick for us to prove that you are who you say you are. And in Jesus' response to them in Matthew 16, maybe there's a hint of frustration. Like when you get the same question over and over again, sometimes you don't answer it as, as uh, even-handedly as you do the first time. My parents can relate to this. If your kid asks the same question over and over again, your 14th answer might not be as gracious as the first or the second. And here he calls them out. He says, you know how to read the signs in the sky. You know how to tell the weather, but you don't know how to read the signs of the times. They're pragmatically perceptive. They're smart people. They're knowledgeable people. And yet, and the most important thing, they can't interpret the signs. In both passages, Jesus connects this demand for a sign with the fact that they are an evil and adulterous generation. He says, you're asking for this because you're an evil and adulterous generation. You're unrighteous. You're unfaithful. That's why you're testing me in this way. But looking for a sign isn't wrong in and of itself, right? Like, it's okay to look for signs. It's okay to look for confirmation. I mean, how could it be wrong? Because God himself gives us so many signs. Like the Bible is full of God giving his people signs. Matthew's gospel, the way that Matthew writes it, all of these Old Testament passages he quotes, he gives us all of these confirmations, these fulfillment passages. What he's doing is basically showing us signs and and giving us extra confirmation, extra reason to believe in what we're being told. Right? So that happens throughout Scripture. God invites people at certain places to ask him for a sign. And yet Jesus faults the Pharisees and the Sadducees for not being able to interpret the signs of the times. If it's not wrong to look for signs, why is it wrong for them here? I think the reason is in that word testing. Right? The reason that they're seeking signs is that they are misguided. Right? They, they are not seeing clearly. God has already given them so many signs over and over again that to come to him now and ask for a sign is provocation. Right? It indicates a willful blindness. If Jesus performs so many different miracles all around them, if he does so many incredible things, and then they come up to him and say, okay, now show us a sign. That demonstrates something about where they, they really are, where their hearts are. The fulfillment of prophecies, that's a legion of signs that they've already seen. His miracles are a multitude of signs. But in the face of all of this, they can still stand there and say, okay, show us a sign. And the sign that he says they can have, the sign of his resurrection, well, that's interesting. Because in Luke 16... 
when Abraham is speaking to the rich man, he alludes to that very sign. Abraham tells the rich man in Luke 16.31, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Which is exactly what this sign of Jonah is all about. They're asking for a sign, but in the hardness of their hearts, they won't believe anything he says. They won't accept anything. When it comes to knowing, in their minds, they know more than he does. They know better. Knowledge intensifies judgment. Jesus says that the men of Nineveh and the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, will testify against this generation at the judgment. They'll come into God's court before his presence and they will speak in favor of their condemnation. Those who, despite the signs, still rejected the Savior. He's already spoken to us this way before. If you remember in Matthew 11, he says something similar. He says, but I will tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. And he's speaking his woes to Chorazim, to Bethsaida. He warns them. He says it will be better for uh, Tyre and Sidon. It will be better for Sodom than it will be for you on the day of judgment. This is a different kind of comparison because in Matthew 11, he's mentioning these pagan cities which were destroyed or had judgment poured out on them because they did not repent. So in Matthew 11, he's saying, you know, like you, they didn't repent, but there's a difference because they refuse to repent in ignorance. You refuse to repent with knowledge. Like they knew a lot less than you do. Right? So they're judged, but you all the more so. It'll be worse for you because you know more than them. Here it's a little bit different. Right? In Matthew 12, it's still an Old Testament comparison, but the men of Nineveh did repent. In the most unlikely prophetic mission recorded in the Old Testament, Jonah went to the godless city of Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, and preached repentance hoping and believing that it would not work and that he would be treated to the spectacle of the destruction of that city for which he longed. And instead, the men of Nineveh repented. The queen of Sheba is a little bit different, but she came from afar because she'd heard the rumors of the wisdom of Solomon and she wanted to see it for herself. So she was a seeker after the wisdom of God. The point here is they knew less than you know. They had less knowledge than you, and yet they did the right thing. The men of Nineveh knew less than you do, but when they heard the message, they repented. But you've remained hard. The queen of Sheba knew less about the God of Israel than you do, but when she heard a rumor, she traveled around the world so that she could hear it for herself. She sought true wisdom, but you in the presence of a greater wisdom in Solomon's, your heart remains hard. So there are two kinds of pursuits here that are being referenced. There's this idea of heeding the signs of the times, the way the men of Nineveh did. These were guys who couldn't just tell the weather, they could tell what time it was. Prophetically speaking, it was time to repent, otherwise you face judgment. And so their hearts were turned. They could heed the signs of the times. 
But in the Queen of the South's case, this is another kind of pursuit, but it's related. This is seeking wisdom, right? This is another kind of knowledge, to have knowledge of God, to have wisdom from God. So, seeking the signs, interpreting them rightly, seeking wisdom, and living by it. These are the two practices that Jesus is referring to here. He presents both of these things, which in and of themselves are good things, like responding to the signs rightly, pursuing wisdom, that's good. But both of them can become spiritual obstacles. These men who have all the signs, these men who have this firsthand exposure to the wisdom of God, their hearts grow harder despite these advantages. Paul talks about these things in a similar way as well. If you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. It's not wrong to seek signs. It's not wrong to seek wisdom. And yet, it's in the pursuit of signs and in the pursuit of wisdom that these knowledgeable people encounter their greatest obstacle. If it's not wrong to seek wisdom, why are the Greeks wrong to seek it here? Why is it cited as if it's a bad thing? When you think about that, like why is it a stumbling block if the Greeks seek wisdom? You'd think that would be good, right? That it's, it's priming the pump. They'll be ready because they're seeking wisdom. But you might think of some pursuits of wisdom as another kind of testing, I think the reason why this kind of wisdom seeking is misguided is that it's another kind of demand on God to justify himself. The Jews want God to prove himself by giving signs. The Greeks want God to prove himself by giving them reason, by giving them arguments. It's just another way of putting God to the test. And it tries his patience The gospel is foolishness to the Greeks, Paul says, because the gospel uses God's alphabet, not theirs. Because its logic is God's logic, not theirs. It's rendered foolishness or gibberish in translation, we might say. Because this reality, this wisdom of God, presupposes a whole different world than the one that they think they live in. The wisdom of God proclaims an all-powerful creator who made all things, who governs all things, who interprets all things so that all things are what he's made them to be. All things are what he says they are. All things are what they are in the mind of God as he thinks of those things. In other words, the wisdom of God challenges the foundation of our thought. And when things challenge you that hard... When something confronts you that means you've got to rethink literally everything, it's easier to dismiss that as folly. It just sounds like foolishness. If I have to undo all the things I know to be true, then what you're saying is just foolishness. If I'm going to believe something like this, God, then you're really going to have to prove it to me. You're really going to have to stretch to demonstrate that you're right. 
The challenge that Jesus gives to us here, you might think of as a different kind of challenge than the one that we've seen before. Jesus, as he warns of judgment, these warnings kind of fall on different people in different places. This, I'm going to say, is a challenge or a warning to the smart ones. To the smart ones. In quotes, the smart ones. And when we put it in quotes, I think you know, it's, it's to those of us who consider ourselves smart. Jesus' warning, when you read it alongside Paul's words, it's a challenge to people who ordinarily are in least need of challenges like this. Like people who are already switched on. People who are already looking for signs. People who are already seeking wisdom. Typically, those are going to be the people who are attentive. Right? They're the ones that already have their eyes open. They congratulate themselves that they're paying attention, that they're more open-minded that they're actually thinking about the hard stuff in a way that other people aren't. It's a challenge to people who tell themselves, you know what? I'm not satisfied with easy answers. I need more depth. And those are words that might relate to a lot of you and resonate. But to those of us who have that longing for more depth and aren't satisfied with the shallowness that we see around us, this is a challenge for us. You might expect Jesus' words here, His encouragement to be something like this. Hey, you should all be looking for signs the way these smart people are. When they come to Jesus and they show us a sign, you expect Him to turn to the others and say, you know, I wish all of you were asking for signs the way these smart men are inquiring. I wish everyone was seeking wisdom the way these smart people are seeking wisdom. But instead, it turns out that sign-seeking and wisdom-seeking can backfire on you. You can be too smart for your own good. You can be blind to the fact that your assumptions are dictating your conclusions just like everyone else's are, and that you're not immune to human weakness. That's the point, that you too have to be humbled. You see a lot of uh, news stories in the media these days about something called confirmation bias. You heard that term before, confirmation bias? Confirmation bias is, is this thing that makes it so that less smart people like yourselves believe what they want to believe and only see the evidence that confirms for them their own beliefs, whereas smarter people like the ones who wrote the article do not suffer from these biases. And it's interesting how no matter who's writing them, they always talk about it as if it's a phenomenon that affects other people. And that the solution to that bias is really to think more like I do. Right? The way to overcome your biases is, is to basically be like me. It's when you're susceptible to that kind of thinking that you need the challenge of Jesus' words. It's not enough to just say, hey, I'm paying more attention than other people. It's not enough to say, I care more about wisdom than other people because even those things can become obstacles in the weakness of the human heart. Like everyone else, we have to mortify our pride. Sometimes your natural advantages, your intelligence, your information, your attentiveness might be detriments if there are obstacles to you hearing and believing the truth. Everyone needs to be humbled in the presence of God. 
when I think about this moment, it's easy, I think, for all of us to judge the Pharisees, right? It's very rare that we read these accounts and we sympathize with Pharisees. And yet, we should think about them sympathetically because the things they're susceptible to are our problems as well. Don't see these men asking for a sign and say, oh, I would never do that. I would never put Jesus to the test in that way. Of course you would. You do. We all do. And the, the dose of medicine that they need is one we need as well. We need to be humbled. We need to recognize that if we're in Christ, if we have entered into His kingdom, it's not because of the signs we interpreted rightly. It's not because of the wisdom that we sought when others would not. That God has worked in us as He has in everyone else. And He's humbled us as He has everyone who stands before Him. In other words, it's Christ's power that we have to thank and to glorify, not our gifts, intelligence, or choices. Christ's power turns our obstacles into doorways Christ's power transforms our weakness into strength. It's easy, I think, especially now in Matthew 12, as we just get one warning after another from Jesus to just bathe in these messages of, of human hopelessness. Right? If even knowledge and wisdom can become obstacles to faith, then what hope is there? But as we said last time, this is Jesus' method like Jesus is intentionally showing us that all of the things that we usually put our hopes in are worthless. That none of the things that we typically rely on in this life are going to be enough to save us. He emphasizes the helplessness of our condition so that we can marvel all the more at the power of His grace. The grace of Jesus doesn't help good people perfect their virtues. The grace of Jesus scoops up the hopeless and the helpless and it brings them face to face with a loving God requiring no effort on their part. Fortunately, when Paul says those words of his about the foolishness of the gospel to the Greeks, the obstacle that the Jews see in the gospel, he doesn't stop there. Right? He continues... He says, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. It's not that he says, the Jews can't be saved because they ask for signs and the signs become obstacles. The Greeks can't be saved because they seek wisdom and so the gospel seems like folly to them. When he makes that turn, he says, but to those who are being called, he says, both Jews and Greeks. These people who cannot be helped, these people who, who cannot seem to save themselves, no matter how attentive they are, how smart they are, these are the people who are being transformed by this gospel. These are the people to whom Christ becomes the power of God and the wisdom of God. And in that moment, Paul reveals to us what you might think of as the beauty of repentance, the beauty of what it is that God does when he humbles us, because his grace transforms 
the way we see those signs. It transforms the way we value that knowledge. It's not that all of that stuff that was an obstacle is worthless and needs to be destroyed. By changing our hearts, the thing that was the obstacle becomes the doorway. But the knowledge you had that was standing in your way, when God's power unleashes itself in your life, that knowledge suddenly becomes knowledge again. That knowledge is of value to do. No longer is it a weight around your neck. Those signs, which it seemed once obscured your vision, now become powerful confirmation. They work the way they were meant to work for you. But only grace enables us to interpret the signs and to seek wisdom rightly. It's grace that turns our looking into finding. Like the very things that were the barriers become the gateways into faith. And then our weakness becomes strength, but only through Christ. Only through Him. As you reflect on this, as you think about the meaning of these words, recognize this. We should acknowledge the signs that are all around us. If the Pharisees are wrong to demand a sign, it's because there are so many already there. They're asking for something they've already been given in abundance, and so have we. We should see what God has surrounded us with. We should see the evidence that he has given us in his history of faithfulness to his people. Also, we should recognize the greater wisdom of God. When we don't understand, when we don't grasp what it is that he's doing, we should recognize that there are some things we never will grasp until he reveals them to us. Practically speaking, though, for people like us, people who are longing, people who are seeking, this means that what you're looking for is already here. They are literally asking Jesus for things he's given them over and over again. That's frustrating in the first instance, but when you think about it, it's kind of comforting too. Because it means that the need is not one that cannot be fulfilled. It's one that's been fulfilled over and over again. What you're longing for, what you're asking for, the confirmation that you cry out to heaven and and beg God to give you, oh, it's there. It's all around you. All that has to happen is your eyes have to be open to it. And what that means is one of the greatest existential needs that we feel is actually one of the easiest for God to fulfill because he's been doing it from the very beginning. Also, as you think about these words, consider this. When you hear Christ crucified being preached, you should follow the example of the men of Nineveh and repent. Take seriously this comparison. There are people who had far fewer advantages than you do, but when they heard the message of repentance, they did what they were called upon to do. And we still, in spite of everything, look back at Assyria and we think, oh, what a dark and and evil empire that was. Don't be one of those people who on the day of judgment has to stand there as the men of Nineveh testify against you because your heart was hardened when theirs wasn't. Be like them in turn. And when you hear Christ crucified, preached, don't dismiss it all as folly. Don't say this is foolishness. Don't say this doesn't even make sense. It doesn't add up. Instead, be like the Queen of Sheba, who when she heard a rumor of the wisdom of God, wanted to find out for herself. Chase after wisdom. 
It's not just the power of God that Christ is for those who are being called, but Christ is, Paul says, the wisdom of God. If you're pursuing wisdom, you're not pursuing an abstract thing. If you're pursuing real wisdom, you're pursuing a person. You're chasing after Jesus Christ. And that person is the one who's being proclaimed to you here. So turn to him and live. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast. 